Polycystic ovarian syndrome is the most common endocrine disorder and one of the most frequent causes of infertility in women. It affects 5 to 20% of women of childbearing age. Now, the pathogenesis of PCOS is still not fully understood, but insulin resistance is widely accepted to have a central pivotal role in its pathogenesis. According to a cross-sectional study, insulin resistance was present in 75% of lean and 95% of overweight women with PCOS. So if insulin resistance is the cause, the next logical question is, well, what's causing that? This insulin resistance seems to have something behind it, and that is an imbalance in the ratio of vital inositols. In the treatment of PCOS, metformin is the gold standard metabolic treatment. However, metformin may induce mild to severe GI side effects and in some patients may predispose to a type of lactic acidosis. So, an evidence-based and data-driven alternative is highly welcome here to try to get to the heart of PCOS, which is insulin resistance. Can myo-inositol actually help reverse some of the PCOS metabolic derangements? And if it does it, how does it work? And can it actually help normalize cycles? Well, the answer to all of these questions may surprise you. So let's get into this episode, which is inositol for PCOS. Yes, let's get into that now. Medicine moves real fast. We're here to help us all keep up the pace. This is Clinical Pearls. Emily, thanks for your question regarding this subject. Here's your podcast. In a previous episode, we covered PCOS and we tried to drive home the message that it's not one condition, okay? So we shouldn't put patients into this one box uh, with a label and stick on it like a package. Boom, you've got PCOS on your way because everyone is different. So PCOS isn't just one clinical entity and one clinical scenario. It, it actually is a syndrome of different phenotypes. And in that episode, we talked about the different letter designations of PCOS phenotype, and, and some have more uh, ovulatory PCOS. Some can have anovulatory, which of course is the most stereotypical. Some have hyperandrogenemic PCOS. Some are non-hyperandrogenemic. So there's not one, just one type of PCOS, okay? So we got to remember that. You can go back on the, to the archives uh, or search for that, the different phenotypes of PCOS, because it really is super, super interesting. Yeah, we've learned a lot about PCOS, and we now know that at its heart is this whole issue of insulin resistance. And, and, the, and the thinking is, is kind of backwards, okay? Because we first thought, oh, it's women who are obese, uh, and then that obesity then in turn causes insulin resistance, and that affects the ovary, and then you get PCOS. Well, the truth is insulin resistance may actually precede the weight issue, which is why they get overweight. But you see how it's kind of blaming the patient, right? Like somehow like, oh, well, it's because you're overweight. Therefore, you make more insulin. And therefore, that insulin is now affecting your ovary because it affects your theca cells. Um, so it basically, it's all you. And that's not the case at all. I mean, there, this is a metabolic syndrome. So first of all, we've gone from calling it a disease. Okay, I trained with that. Ooh, that was PCOD. Y'all remember that at all? 
polycystic ovarian disease. Uh, and it's not a disease. It's a metabolic condition. So then we move to PCOS, and, and that's the right thing to do. But but instead of calling this a gynecological infertility diagnosis, the truth is it's now evolved. We now consider this to be an endocrine issue. It's an endocrinopathy. It, it is a metabolic derangement that includes gynecological implications. So we got to get our, our mind around this thing uh, because we can also inadvertently, uh, through our own provider bias, uh, it's just in a way almost blame the patient. And and this is something that they may not have control of because th- this is genetic factors. Uh, this is uh, at the level of, of hormone signaling. So now, now, yes, being overweight and obese, obviously is not good for you. That's definitely going to augment the problem. But this whole idea that, that PCOS comes secondary to obesity is reverse thinking. Actually, it's the insulin and metabolic derangements that leads to faulty uh, uh, nutrition nutrition handling uh, by the body, and therefore you get obesity, right? So at the heart, at that central cog, uh, is this insulin resistance. And yes, lifestyle factors are huge because that should always be part of PCOS care, along with weight loss and healthy diet uh, and healthy supplementation, which we're going to talk about here. But but remember that at its core, these are this is something that patients may not be able to, to control. So this is why insulin resistance. Everybody got that. Okay, great. Well, now we know what causes PCOS. And everybody was kind of chill there for a while. Like, okay, insulin resistance. That's the problem. Cool. We, we figured it out. But then the next step, next step came in and said, well, wait a minute, what is causing this insulin resistance? And then when they pull that, that sheet back, when they, you peel that layer off the onion, it's pretty remarkable because now we get to true ovarian at a cellular level, what's going on with that signaling, okay? And, and at the heart of that, uh, research has now shown that it actually is a dysfunction in, in a ratio of two vital uh, components that are crucial to all cells that are called inositols, okay? Specifically, there's two that are super important here. So when you read the literature about inositols and PCOS or inositols and um, gestational diabetes, which we're just barely going to touch on here because I want to leave that maybe for another episode, but our focus here is on PCOS. You got to make sure that you're, you understand that not all inositols are the same, okay? There's actually nine different types of inositols, and we'll cover that in a minute. But the two that are most crucial uh, to the body, especially in terms of gynecological health, here it is, y'all. The first one is myo-inositol, and the second one is uh, de-inositol or de-chiro-inositol. Those are the two relatives, the two siblings in the entire nine-member inositol family that play a critical role uh, at the ovarian level. So, right, PCOS, okay, fine, what causes that? Then take a couple of steps back, boom, you land at insulin resistance, cool. Well, what causes that? Take a couple of steps back. Uh, and now you're like, oh man, there's, there, there seems to be a, an, something off in this ratio of myo-inositol and de-chiro-inositol that's repetitive here in not only in bench models, but in clinical studies as well. So now take a couple of steps back from that. And the thought is, well, if we can fix that ratio, get it back to a more physiological state, maybe then we can stop the dominoes from falling. Wow. I mean, y'all get how cool this is? I mean, look from, this is stuff that Stein and Leventhal, 
like couldn't even imagine, right? So when they first described, hey, there's this condition of infertile women that tend to be a little bit overweight. Some of them are kind of hirsute. Um, and they put their name on it as Stein Leventhal. And then obviously now became polycystic ovarian disease, now PCOS. Now we're talking about insulin resistance. Now we're talking about a, a offset ratio between myo-inositol and decaro-inositol. I mean, wow. I mean, we keep going back and peeling the onion, getting to its root problem. Uh, and this is why people are so interested in this, because rather than treating the insulin resistance by throwing, um, you, you know, like metformin on everybody, well, why don't we just try to get behind that and try to fix it at its problem? So rather than putting a Band-Aid on it, why don't we actually get to the cut itself, to the, to, to the wound itself, and try to heal it there? Super interesting, right? Now let's get into what inositols are to begin with, because we all learned this in biochemistry. I liked biochem, actually. That was super fascinating. Although I've never currently been at the bedside in a patient in labor or some emergency and try to figure out how many ATPs her Krebs cycles are making at that time. Like, why do we have to learn that? I get if you're going into metabolic medicine, yeah, super important. Aerobic, anaerobic, I get that. But y'all remember the Krebs cycle? What a pain in the ass that was. All right, inositols belong to the vitamin B complex group. And remember that all inositols are synthesized by the human body. They are made within the body. So let's stop there for a minute because for a long time, they were considered to be essential nutrients. Essential nutrients, if you remember what that means, means that they had to be taken in by the diet because the body itself doesn't make it. And so for a long time, inositols were in that group of essential nutrients because it wasn't really known whether the body made it or not. Um, but they absolutely do, all right? So historically, inositols are called vitamin B8. They just kind of grouped them in the B vitamin family, but it's not a vitamin at all, and it's not an essential nutrient because the body does, in fact, make it. Uh, and the truth is, as we've already mentioned, there are actually nine members of inositols that are stereoisomers of each other. But the two most important ones are ones that we've already mentioned, myo-inositol and then the D-chiro derivative, which is D-chiro inositol. Those are the two main ones, all right? So not an essential nutrient. It is made by the body. And so let's just pause there for a minute. Okay, Because if you're thinking, well, wait a minute, if the body makes it, uh, why do we need supplementation with it? Why would taking extra inositol work at all? And, and, and here's the catch. Here's a simple answer. Good question. But the answer is even simpler, which is, hey, the body makes it. But what the body does with what it makes is the problem. Because at the ovarian level, I'm going to explain this in a minute. Uh, you see, it takes endogenously made inositol, but then it jacks up that ratio. So by supplementing uh, from the diet, taking the exogenous sources, then you can actually help flip that ratio. Even though the body makes it, it's making it in a jacked up formula, in a jacked up ratio. So we've got to put that ratio back. So that's the first kind of pushback that I've heard when I've talked about this in the past. Uh, you know, say, hey, there's some data on nostrils. I'm like, hey, well, doesn't the body make that? Absolutely. But if it's making it in the wrong ratio, then this is where the problems can come into play. So taking supplementation is about putting that ratio back. I'm going to explain what all this means uh, in just a minute, okay? Uh, but the two, again, most important are myo-inositol and decaro-inositol. 
myo-inositol is important or even actually essential for the smooth running of a variety of cell functions, including cell growth, cell survival, cell development, and even in, in the functioning of peripheral nerves. It helps with osteogenesis and it helps, of course, with ovarian hormone production. We're going to get into that in a minute. Now, we're going to talk about how this actually relates to IR, insulin resistance, in just a minute because it's super, super fascinating. Myo-inositol is no longer regarded as an essential nutrient. So that's the clinical pearl. Yes, we make it from the body, but supplementation is considered valid and evidence-based to put that ratio of myo-inositol and decaro-inositol back in proper ratio. Actually, I guess I should say put it back in proper balance, okay, because that ratio is off. And again, I'm going to get to that in just a minute. Now, it's not all about getting it from supplements. And no, this podcast, I want to be very clear, is not being sponsored by any kind of product for myo-inositol or decaro-inositol at all. No, no, no. I'm just trying to let you know what the data actually says about this. And this podcast idea came from one of our podcast family members who said, hey, I've had some people ask me about this for PCOS and even for gestational diabetes. Is there data on this? And so I replied, yeah, there's actually data on it. And I'll explain what the data has found and again, some of the limitations on it. But the question is, is there is there some validity to that? The answer is absolutely. So while the body does make it, it's not all about just going out and buying some supplementation, which is totally fine to do. But as I mentioned in other episodes, see, all of our diets are just jacked. I mean, if we could really just get the nutrients that we need uh, from our diet, then we, we wouldn't have a lot of these issues. But But of course, we don't. So this is found in in some foods that are inositol rich, okay? Now, specifically, the ones that have uh, high amounts of inositol are in foods that are like in fresh fruits or vegetables and in all foods that contain seeds. So fresh fruits, vegetables, and seeds have high levels of inositols. Uh, If you want some specific examples, I know you can find that online, but these are like beans, grains, nuts, uh, and especially high content of inositols are in almonds, walnuts, uh, some Brazil nuts, uh, oats, and bran also contain good amounts of myo-inositol, all right? So oats, uh, bran, nuts, almonds, those are great uh, examples of food sources to increase inositols. And among vegetables, the highest content seems to be in the bean and the pea family, while leafy vegetables are the poorest vegetable source. So green leafy vegetables, fantastic for other reasons, but not so much for inositol content, okay? And if you're looking specifically at fruits, then cantaloupes and citrus fruits, with the exception of lemons, have extraordinary high contents of myo-inositol. So Remember, the ratio is myo-inositol and decaro-inositol. Let me just get to the heart of it right now. You want more myo-inositol. It's myo-inositol that's the fixer here, okay? Because naturally in the body, it's about a 40 to 1 ratio of myo-inositol and decaro-inositol. The problem comes in when decaro-inositol is flipped, okay? When that ratio flips and you have more of decaro instead of myo-inositol, boom, that triggers insulin resistance. And I'm going to get into the science here in just a minute. But that's the take home. You want foods and supplements that are rich, that are high quantity of myo-inositol. 
You see, don't you remember being told as a kid, right? Oh, you are what you eat. Man, we forgot all that. And and I'm let me be the first. I'm not like preaching to anybody because my diet, I try to be su- super conscious, super aware. I really do. I try to get my fruit. I try to get my vegetables. Uh, but I am addicted to caffeine, which is definitely probably not good. Uh, and I don't drink enough water. And so I'm not the, the, the one to go, oh, look at what I'm eating. I'm not well, that's not me at all, okay? I am somewhat conscious of what I eat, aware, or try to be, but I'm not against a big fat burger. Let me just put it that way, or nice greasy uh, buffalo wings. Uh, uh, just being honest. And I know I've got big gaps. I don't eat as much vegetables as I should, but this is for all of us, right? I mean, if if you can be, it's because it, it's a lot of work to go, man, I'm going to stick to super healthy Mediterranean diet, um, which has been looked at for PCOS, and I've addressed that before in the past. And the reason that those things work is because they're high in inositals. Hello. So it's all the same thing. So yes, nutrition is vital. Um, and all of us, well, I can't say all of us, I think a large majority of, especially in the U S cause we're always on the move and it's quick foods and processed foods, man, it's just not the healthiest. All right, I am being given the signal that I am wandering way off track. So when we come back, let's talk about why this ratio matters between myo-inositol and inositol for PCOS. All right, in PCOS, the ratio of those two vital inositols totally matters. Remember we stated that there were nine total types of inositols in general, but the two most important ones that we've already mentioned. Do you remember what they are? Myo-inositol and D-chiro-inositol. The ratio between these two is critical. Decreased urinary excretion of D-chiro-inositol and increased urinary excretion of myo-inositol in human subjects has been linked with type 2 diabetes. Did you all catch that? When D-chiro-inositol, when that level is higher than myo-inositol, what's been found repetitively in the literature is diabetes, type 2 diabetes, is the result. Additional studies on humans and in animal models have also demonstrated that this altered inositol profile in urine is also tied directly to the cause of that type 2 diabetes, which is insulin resistance. Remember, peeling back that onion. So this has led to the concept that myo-inositol, which is actually an insulin sensitizer, may hinder the pathogenesis and the metabolic derangements of PCOS. So we can supplement myo-inositol, we can put PCOS into check, at least in terms of its metabolic derangement. And this is backed by true metabolic science. So the big take-home is that myo-inositol, when it's higher than d-chiro-inositol, that's the favorable ratio. That favors normal insulin function. However, when that ratio flips, insulin resistance becomes the norm. And I'm going to explain why that's the case in just a few moments. But that's the issue here. The normal physiological ratio of myo over d-chiro is 40 to 1. In the ovary, D-chiro-inositol is involved in insulin-mediated androgen synthesis, whereas myo-inositol mediates glucose uptake and FSH signaling. In the human ovary, 99% of the intracellular pool of inositol contains myo-inositol, and then the remaining part, that 1% or so, is D-chiro-inositol. Okay, lots of clinical pearls coming out here. So, 
Myo-inositol mediates glucose uptake and, and use, whereas the D-chiro-inositol part of, of the family uh, is for androgen synthesis. Y'all getting this? See how it's making sense? And in the ovary, in the intracellular pool, myo-inositol is almost 100%. It's 99% of the inositol population. What biochemical research has shown is that when there's a deficiency in myo-inositol, that impairs FSH signaling. D-chiro-inositol then wins, and then this throws off the androgen productivity. So follow this, because this is, this is the pathogenesis here to how do we get to IR, insulin resistance, and then IR then of course leads to the full syndrome of PCOS. And this has to do with a specific enzyme in the ovarian cells, which is epimerase, okay? Epimerase. Now, epimerase activity is in the theca cells. And what happens is when there is an increase in D-chiro-inositol, it forces epimerase activity to increase, which converts myo-inositol into D-chiro-inositol. In other words, it takes the good inositol and then makes it into the insulin resistance one, the one that's, that forces more androgen production, because when the ratio is off, epimerase in the ovarian cells further augments that ratio flip. Now, if you're like, man, wh where did that come? I don't remember anything about that in biochemistry. We weren't taught that. Well, I went back and, and, and I looked at some of the, the stuff in biochemistry through the medical school curriculum, and, and it's really not. I mean, everyone focuses on FSH and LH and ovarian signaling, and, and that's great, and DECA cells are responsible for androgen production, that's fine. But when you, you've got to really go specific to what actually starts all of that, and it's, it's this ratio of myo-inositol and inositol because they are crucial for this uh, proper uh, both intra- and intracellular signaling, okay? See how crazy this is? You can go back to 2014 in the journal called Endocrine, and there's a fantastic article that goes through this biochemistry at the ovarian level, and the chief author is Highmark. I'll post that in our reference list, but it goes through all of this, and the short of it is this is the critical factor here in the pathogenesis of PCOS is that myonositol should be winning. It should be much more prevalent over D-chiro. But when that metabolism is off, when, when the ratio starts to flip, it actually kicks on the gear of epimerase, which further takes myo-inositol and then converts it into D-chiro-inositol. Uh, it kind of helps to propagate it, that ratio flip. And that stimulates then an altered uh, a programming of the cell leading more androgen formation, and that androgen formation uh, also leads to that insulin resistance. So the, the net result of the flip in myo-inositol and inositol ratio is that you get uh, this, this gap in glucose metabolism because insulin resistance now predominates. Remember that myo-inositol is an insulin sensitizer. And just think about d-chiro-inositol as an insulin antagonizer. So when that ratio flips, you now get a scenario, perfect storm that makes insulin resistance much more likely. And that is how the pathogenesis of PCOS now gets put into motion. Yes, we're focusing on PCOS, but this has also been looked at for the same reason. Uh, I mean, if this thing can fix insulin resistance, uh, why would it not 
work for gestational diabetes? Well, that has been looked at, and I'm not going to give you that data. Maybe we'll leave it again in a, in a separate podcast. But the short answer is yes. I mean, there is data that, that actually can work as well. Now, it works much better, of course, for those that have mild to moderate glucose impairment. I mean, if you've got some, if your sugars are way whack, then it may not, you know, it's not a wonder drug, okay? It's just an alternative to traditional, you know, pharmacotherapy like insulin uh, or metformin use in, in pregnancy. But I want to leave that for another episode. But, but this is being looked at not just in PCOS, but also, as we mentioned, for gestational diabetes is being looked at because uh, of myonositol's function uh, and role with neurotransmission. It's being looked at for depression and anxiety and PTSD, not alone. Again, yes, there's some evidence that it works alone, but it obviously works best with other things like cognitive behavioral therapy or EMDR for trauma. Uh, so, you know, there's, it's one thing to, I, I don't want to make it seem like, oh, this fixes everything. That's not, that's not what I'm trying to say, but because we, you are what you eat, this nutrition issue really is vital here, guys. And remember I'm mainstream science. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I don't consider, you know, myself alternative or complimentary, but when there's data, there's data and, and this actually is, is working towards the end of the podcast. I'm going to explain well, why isn't it in the ACOG PCOS bulletin? Oh, why does it always go straight to, you know, insulin sensitizers, metformin? Uh, why does it always hit that? And I'm going to explain that in the, at the end of the episode, and it makes a lot of sense. But but there is chemistry here. This is, this is rooted in evidence-based uh, biochemical uh, uh, animal models and in human studies where you can actually show that this ratio is off and then the result being uh, insulin uh, impairment. Uh, glucose intolerance, uh, or just frank out type 2 diabetes. So this ratio of myo-inositol and decaro-inositol really is a big deal. And it's not just about insulin resistance. There is some data because the oocytes use, need to use glucose properly that it can also impact uh, oocyte quality, okay? So the idea is, yes, IR is big. We can fix that. That's great. But there's other benefits to that, like possibly even improving oocyte quality. There is some fair data on that. It's not great, but there is fair data uh, in IVF studies, okay? Now, I'm going to touch on some of that in this episode, although I really want to get into the issue of insulin resistance with PCOS as a potential way to reverse these metabolic issues rather than focusing so much on the pregnancy outcome and fertility stuff. There is something about that. I'm going to touch on that in just a moment because the data is, is it looks a little disappointing, but I'm going to explain why it looks disappointing and why overall it's still uh, in favor of inositol use. Uh, for PCOS, but the infertility part, the pregnancy outcome is a little bit more complicated. So I am going to touch on that, but I don't want to get too much into the details about uh, fertility and IVF because I just want to focus on the use of myonostal specifically for insulin resistance and its possible reversal. All right, so now that we've settled that issue, that it's the ratio that's off of myonostal and decaronostal, the big question is, Okay, so if we take extra myonositol, does that work? Where's the evidence of that? Well, there actually has been several pieces of that puzzle which have been published regarding inositol use, specifically myo-inositol for PCOS. 
And as I've said in the past, I like systematic reviews and meta-analyses because they're a great way to group a lot of data together and see if their individual data points are valid as a whole. So that's what we're going to do in this episode, all right? So for our summary of the data, we're going to summarize two key systematic reviews, one of which is also a meta-analysis. The first came from 2016, and the second one was this year in 2023. Plus, we're also going to throw in a Cochrane review in between these two studies, which was published in 2018. All right, so 2016, 2018, and then a systematic review and meta-analysis from 2023. Let's start in 2016. These authors published their systematic review on the subject in the International Journal of Endocrinology. The title of the publication was Effects of Inositol in Women with PCOS, a Systematic Review of Randomized Control Trials. So first thing to pick up, yes, this is RCTs, great, level one evidence. But remember, because it's level one evidence, this doesn't always mean that it's solid or good quality, right? Those are different things. So the gold standard for a design, of course, is an RCT. That's level one. But then how it's carried out, in other words, were certain cofactors uh, accounted for, were confounders appropriately controlled, all of that's uh, that's a whole other issue. That goes into the quality of the test, which is typically poor, fair, moderate, or strong, okay? So nonetheless, these are uh, randomized control trials, systematic review 2016. These authors conducted their search from a period of January 1999 to May 2016, and all of these studies involved women with PCOS. The main outcomes were glucose and insulin sensitivity improvement, 17-beta estradiol, testosterone levels, androstenedione, uh, the homeostatic model assessment index, that's the HOMA, H-O-M-A. You're like, what the heck is the HOMA? I'm not going to get into it now, but it's a pretty neat uh, a way of, of, of analyzing the metabolic syndrome and response to treatment in a patient, okay? That's legit. It's called the HOMA index, H-O-M-A. stands for the homeostatic model of assessment. They also looked at uh, sex hormone binding globulin, uh, oocyte quality. See, I told you there were studies about oocyte quality and even looked for studies that included embryo quality. Pretty cool. They also looked at uh, biochemical pregnancy rates. In other words, hey, you got a positive uh, HCG, boom, that's what, something we're going to check. So there's a lot of things that they looked for. And, and that's one of the issues here with the study is if you're going to do a systematic review, great, probably best to look at two to three things because if not then it gets like super voluminous uh and it gets kind of messy but nonetheless these authors did study a lot of different options here all in women with pcos looking to see if supplementation with myoinositol actually did something all right and i like that they included uh biochemical markers uh glucose sensitivity as well as embryo quality and biochemical uh pregnancy results all right so after all of the research, 12 studies were included and analyzed in this review, remember 2016. And the short answer, well, as stated by the authors, quote, this critical review of the 12 RCTs included in the systematic review highlights that oral administration of myo-inositol either alone or in combination with d inositol is capable of restoring spontaneous ovulation and improving fertility in women with PCOS. End quote. 
Pretty cool. Now, they also go on to say, quote, there's also accumulating evidence on the beneficial effects of myo-inositol administration on reproductive function and the efficacy of combined myo-inositol and decaro-inositol administration. In the physiological plasma ratio of 40 to 1, there is amelioration of the metabolic aberrations of PCOS. So let me stop there for a minute. So the short of it is, Either myo-inositol by itself, which is what most people recommend, or a supplement that is 40 to 1 ratio of myo-inositol and decaro-inositol to mirror, to mimic the physiological concentration in the ovary, uh, that's what's shown to be beneficial. All right. So in their final conclusion, quote, the analysis of these clinical trials highlights the salutary, 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 the healthy effects. Why well, don't I just say healthy effects? Salutary. What the heck is that? Salutary effects of myo-inositol uh, in improving several of the hormonal and reproductive disturbances of PCOS. So that's pretty neat, right? Now that they do throw in this little, this little, uh, uh, side note about IVF, all right? Now, this is 2016. We're going to talk about another one in 2018 that was less optimistic. But in 2016, regarding IVF outcomes and embryo quality, they did state, quote, this includes an enhanced oocyte follicular development and oocyte maturation and a better response to stimulation and pregnancy outcome in IVF procedures, end quote. All right, so you got 2016 saying, hey, there's something here. Definitely uh, helps with insulin sensitivity, glucose metabolism, biochemical markers, and potentially even egg quality and embryo quality, and therefore helps with IVF. Pretty neat. Now, let's let that simmer for a little bit. Let that simmer. Now, let's go into 2018 with the Cochrane review of similar data. So in 2018, the Cochrane Review did a similar eval, right? Now, obviously, two years down the road. And these authors focused, as the title of the Cochrane Review states, on inositol for women with a diagnosis of polycystic ovarian syndrome and subfertility. So this is not looking so much at insulin uh, uh, sensitivity, biochemical markers like FSH or androstenedione. They just want to take a look at subfertility, all right? So Cochrane Review taking a look at at infertility and pregnancy outcomes as, as their main focus here. They looked at 13 randomized controlled trials that included about 14, just over 1470 women, okay, 1,470. All of these studies included women with PCOS who were obviously having difficulty conceiving. All of the women included in these studies were receiving usual infertility care, and in addition to these, women were given myo-inositol and were compared to women who were receiving no treatment or taking melatonin, metformin, clomiphene, or decaro-inositol, but not myo-inositol. Everybody good? So you take myo-inositol and regular care, and the other group is you take either metformin, uh, clomiphene, not sure why they threw in the melatonin in there, but fine, uh, and then D-chiro-inositol. Those are the study populations. All right, y'all, remember this is 2018. They took a look at 13 RCTs out of the 13. In 11 of those studies, women were also receiving IVF or ICSI. 
right, intracytoplasmic sperm injection. And in the remaining two studies, women were undergoing ovulation induction. So another agent, but not IVF like clomiphene. Okay, so it's pretty good. It's pretty heavy on the infertility eval. So here's the first takeaway and why professional societies have been a little slow to move on on recommending this uh, straight out of the chute, like gung ho. The reason is because these studies had a lot of heterogeneity and a, a lot of the quality of these studies uh, weren't great. Uh, they were moderate to fair. All right. So that's the first criticism is, ah, well, maybe it works, but the studies aren't that good. Well, there's still RCTs. Remember, just like in 2016, this one in 2018, they are RCTs, but it's hard to control everything because there's so many factors going on here with PCOS and infertility. In other words, how do you know it's not some other endometrial factor that's giving infertility and and not just the anovulation by itself. So that's the difficulty with with looking at just pregnancy outcome is that there's so many factors that can go into that. Well, the short of it is, here's what they concluded. Quote, no pooled evidence was available for the use of myo-inositol versus placebo or insulin sensitizing agents, ovulation induction, or another type of inositol for women with PCOS undergoing pretreatment for IVF. In other words, according to this study, like, nah, it didn't really help much over placebo. Okay, so that's disappointing. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Um, remember, 2016 showed it was it some evidence there that this worked. We're going to go over the new one uh, from 2023. Uh, but here's why this one didn't seem to, to have such a favorable result. And it's even in, in their conclusions here in the Cochrane Review. Heterogeneity, very hard to stratify just uh, the issue at, of anovulation, even with other PCOS studies uh, that use letrozole. Uh, which is femora or or clomiphene or clomid. So according to this Cochrane review, it didn't hurt, uh, but the, the real benefit was unclear, okay? So yeah, that's kind of a bummer. But in opposition to this more bleak outlook for inositol in pregnancy outcomes are in fact previous studies that predate this one that actually show that it does work. You see, isn't medicine fun? I mean, no, it doesn't. Yes, it does. No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. And so this is why you've got to look at at the whole body of evidence. I'm trying to be fair balance here. I'm trying to give you one that was kind of bleak on inositol, even though we covered 2016 that showed that it works. And then the new one that we're going to review from January 2023. But there are, just to be clear, there are previous studies that have highlighted, quote, the pivotal role of myo-inositol administration for enhancing the success of human in vitro fertilization outcomes, end quote. Um, that was actually first published in 1992 in the journal Assisted Reproduction and Genetics. So that quote is right out of 1992. Again, nothing new. And it was also reported that follicular fluid volume and its content was actually improved with myo-inositol uh, supplementation. So you have Cochrane, and that's why people go, well, Cochrane Review said it doesn't work. I get that. That's a check mark. I get that. But what about 2016? What about 1992? What about 2023? So you've got to look at the burden of evidence, the whole bulk of it, all right? And also remember that, as we've covered in the past, it's the basic rule of any treatment or supplementation. Hey, is this thing risky? Is it going to hurt somebody? The answer is no. Hey, could this possibly help? The answer is yes. It makes biochemical, uh, it makes clinical, and it makes uh, insulin resistance uh, sense. It makes it better. And, and so it hits the point of low risk and it can 
possibly uh, help, and it looks like it does help according to the burden of evidence. So having said that, let's get into the most recent publication from January 2023 this year uh, from the journal Reproductive Biology and Endocrinology, okay? The journal Reproductive Biology and Endocrinology. The title of this publication is Inositol is an Effective and Safe Treatment in Polycystic Ovary Syndrome, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of RCTs. And again, as I've said before, man, I hate it when they put the, the whole message in the title. I mean, have a little teaser. I mean, do something so people have to read it. But no, the title is Inositol is an Effective and Safe Treatment in PCOS. All right, so there you go. Let's get into this study design and these results coming up next. All right, you talk about persistence in looking for stuff. These authors conducted their systematic search in uh, Central Medline and the Embase database from the inception of those databases from when they first started <laughs> up until October 2021. Man, that's a lot of stuff. Now, you can see how, how frustrating research can be, right? Because they did all of this search, and then they looked for RCTs for women diagnosed with PCOS, then who then were randomized to either inositol uh, or metformin or placebo, okay? And the primary outcome for this uh, meta-analysis and systematic review was normalization of cycles. There we go. Uh, it was uh, helpful things like for BMI, for health maintenance. They looked at carbohydrate metabolism, and then they looked for clinical and laboratory improvement of hyperandrogenism. So they found, uh, after all of the searching, they actually came up with 26 RCTs that were identified, and that included just over 1,600 patients, okay, 1,600 um, and the breakup was about 800 had inositol, about 300 had placebo, and about 500 had metformin. Okay, so inositol, placebo, and metformin. All right, the short answer, yes, that joker actually worked. They had a uh, better response in terms of normalization of cycles, so that's pretty good. They had some improvement in BMI, okay. They had improvement in free testosterone, total testosterone, androstenedione, and even uh, their total insulin levels, the area under the curve, uh, was towards favoring inositol. So the short of it is, yes, there was greater decrease in those factors with inositol compared to placebo, and it was basically comparable to metformin. So again, it's a nice alternative. It wasn't any better, but it wasn't inferior. In other words, it was non-inferior to metformin, which is pretty remarkable considering that one is a pharmaceutical metformin and the other is a nutraceutical, which is a natural supplement. All right, now that we're at the end, podcast family, let's just say the obvious and get it out there. Yes? So does this seem to work? Yeah. Is it, does it make biochemical sense? Yep. Is myo-inositol actually helpful in utero to hit the first domino before you get insulin resistant? Yeah, we have, we've got evidence for that. Okay, so why is it not in the ACOG bulletin on PCOS? That's a good question. So if you read the ACOG bulletin on PCOS, it goes into lifestyle modification, which is huge. It talks about insulin resistance, which is huge. It talks about insulin sensitizing agents, of course, like metformin. Okay, so why? Why not, the, why not mention inositol? Like it's not even in there, like not even like a little hint or a whiff. 
So why is that? Well, I want to be very clear. I am not speaking on behalf of those authors that wrote the bulletin. Um, but, I, but it makes sense, you know, having been part of this process, I, I get the two main issues here. The first is as a professional organization, it's hard to make a strong recommendation for something that has RCT level one evidence, but most judge to be a fair to moderate quality. Now, we do a lot of things on less than that. I get that. But that's just how it is. Uh, and some people have have a beef with, hey, well, it's not it's not a, a great quality study. Of, of course, that, that's super important. But my thing is, hey, does it make bench testing sense? Is it safe again? And could it potentially help? My answer is yes. So, so that's the first thing is, is that there's a lot of heterogeneity to this. Uh, the second thing is it's hard to recommend a nutraceutical that's not regulated by the FDA because those are considered supplements, right? So it's hard to say what's actually in them. I mean, you take the label's word for it. Um, but it's not regulated by the FDA. I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm a big believer in supplements, just so you know. I think I've mentioned that before. I like my turmeric. I like vitamin D. I think those things work. Um, and, and a nostril specifically for PCOS. And then a later topic, which is uh, gestational diabetes, th- there is data for that. I mean, I mean, it's it's, it's fairly good. Um, but, but it's hard for them to recommend something that's not regulated. Okay. And, and then the last answer, the last part of that answer is as, and I hate to say this, but it's the truth. You all know that as, as healthcare providers, we just have so much more comfort, uh, with our meds, right? With pharmacotherapy, that's what we do. We know how to write a script. We know how to dose that. And we're just not really trained as, as traditionally in, in medical school with, uh, with nutrition and and supplementation. And that's why there was a whole other part of medicine called CAM, right? Complementary and alternative medicines. Um, that's now mainstream. Look at ginger, for heaven's sakes, for nausea and vomiting. I remember being told that by midwives, oh, ginger for nausea, vomiting, and pregnancy is great. And I'm like, I've got a prescription pad, man. I can write for Zofran. Uh, and not that Zofran is wrong, but guess what? Yeah, ginger does work. It's in the ACOG bulletin now because it, it just takes a while for us to kind of adapt to that. So the short answer is it's not in the bulletin yet, but the evidence is growing. Again, this last systematic review was January 2023. And as we learn more that nature actually does provide an answer for some things, uh, this is an interesting story to follow. All right, Emily, I hope you found that helpful. Thank you for your question. I hope this uh, sheds some light onto the topic. Super interesting. There is some proof that this thing works. And again, it cannot hurt. So thank you for your question. And thank you for being part of our podcast family. And that goes for everybody else. So as always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.